we have talked about the abomination of desolation. We were in the context of this tribulation period, these last seven years before the return of Jesus Christ to the earth. And we looked at verse 20 and saw that he said, Unless the Lord had shortened those days, no flesh would be saved. But for the elect's sake, whom he chose, he shortened the days. And we established that the elect in verse 20 are national Israel. That is, they're unsaved. Yet they're elect for the sake of the fathers. This passage is addressed to them. It is national Israel that God will shelter and protect during the last three and a half years of the tribulation period. Any Jews who are saved are part of the church, and they will go with the church in the rapture. And any who are saved during the tribulation will be among the tribulation saints, many of whom will be martyred for their belief in Jesus. They will refuse to take the mark of the beast. But national Israel, those Jews who are unsaved, will enter the tribulation period in unbelief. In addition, during that time, there will be 144,000 saved Jews who will be sealed in their foreheads. In uh, Revelation 7, they will evangelize the world. Uh, in Revelation 22:4, we see another reference to this um, mark on foreheads. It says, they shall see his face and his name shall be on their foreheads. That's a, a reference to the new heavens and the new earth. You know, God's identifying people. And of course, we know that um, when the mark of the beast arrives during the tribulation period, that mark may be on their forehand, forehead or on their uh, right, right hand. Also, we see this in Ezekiel chapter 9 and verse 4, uh, where the Lord says to this angel, go through the midst of the city, through the midst of Jerusalem, and put a mark on the foreheads of the men who sigh and cry over all the abominations that are done within it. So this is when uh, Jerusalem is about to be attacked and fall. And he marks those who sigh and cry over these abominations, those who love him or faithful to him. This sealing that takes place strongly implies that they will not be harmed by anything that comes upon the earth. In Revelation chapter 9, verses 3 and 4, it speaks of these locusts that come out of the bottomless pit. It says in verse 3, Out of the smoke locusts came upon the earth, and to them was given power, as the scorpions of the earth have power. They were commanded not to harm the grass of the earth, nor any green thing, nor any tree, but only those men who do not have the seal of God on their foreheads. So once again, we see that, that protection that's taking place. And finally, there will also be some men and women who have been saved during the tribulation period after the rapture of the church. All these will be present during that period of time. Who will benefit from the shortening of the time? He says it's for the elect's sake. Uh, the tribulation saints will be martyred for their faith. Um, it's national Israel that will have the benefit. Nothing in this world can destroy the saints who have believed in Jesus. And so, the shortening of the time in eternity, eternal matters, doesn't make any difference for them, whether they live through the tribulation or whether they're martyred. In Matthew chapter 10, verse 28, Jesus says, Do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul, but rather fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. Are not two sparrows sold for a copper coin? And not one of them falls to the ground apart from your father's will. But the very hairs of your head are all numbered. I try to make it easier on the Lord. <laughs> Do not fear, therefore, you are of more value than many sparrows. Therefore, whoever confesses me before men, him I will also confess before my father who is in heaven. Whoever denies me before men, him I will also deny before my Father who is in heaven. So all men will benefit to some degree by this shortening of time because he says, lest all life perish from the earth. Uh, but men who refuse the truth will not be benefited by the shortening of the time because they'll be condemned in the judgment preceding the millennium, even if they survive the tribulation. So God has national Israel particularly in mind with this shortening of the time frame. In verses 21 through 23, then, uh, Jesus says, if anyone, Then if anyone says to you, and that's then during this time period, 
Then if anyone says to you, look, here's the Christ, or look, he's there, don't believe it. For false Christ and false prophets will rise and show signs and wonders to deceive, if possible, even the elect. But take heed, see, I have told you all things beforehand. And so we see this um, warning against false Christ and false prophets during the tribulation period. But the warning is also applicable to those eras preceding the tribulation period. As with the other sorrows or birth pains, things will ramp up considerably during the seven-year tribulation period. More deception will be being pushed than at any other time in history during that period of time. Now, there are some who are seeing the things taking place now and they think we're in the tribulation period. No, we're not in the tribulation period. Things are going to, conditions are going to be much worse than anything that's happening today. And we know that period of the final seven years will be kicked off by that covenant that's made with Israel to keep them safe for those last seven years. And that covenant broken in the middle of at that three and a half year point. So, no, we're not in the tribulation period at this point. And you know, as the church... We won't be in the tribulation period. We'll be taken to be to the Lord before that time comes. So first, concerning his coming, he warns them not to believe anyone who says Christ is over here or Christ is over there. Matthew, in his account, uh, adds in Matthew 24, verses 26 and 27, he says, Therefore, if they say to you, look, he's in the desert, don't go out. Don't even bother. Or look, he's in the inner rooms. Don't believe it. For as the lightning comes from the east and flashes to the west, so also will the coming of the Son of Man be. Look, he's, he's here, but he's hidden. He's in the secret place. So don't believe it, because his coming is going to be like the lightning flashing from the east to the west. It's going to be like, it's going to be like lightning that no one's seen before. <laughs> in Revelation chapter 1 and verse 7, when uh, speaking... To, the, to John on the Isle of Patmos. It says, Behold, he's coming with clouds, and every eye will see him, even they who pierced him, and all the tribes of the earth will mourn because of him, even so. Amen. So every eye of every person is going to see him when he comes. And, uh, you know, how's this going to take place? Will he circle the globe? I mean, but everyone's going to be aware. No one's going to say, Hey, he's in a secret place. Oh, he's hiding from us. In uh, Matthew 24 and verse 30, Jesus says, Then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in heaven, and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn. All the tribes of the earth will mourn. And they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. So when they see that pierced one coming back, there is mourning taking place. In Acts chapter 1 and verse 9, we see this concerning his second coming. Uh, Jesus speaks to them and then he's taken up into the cloud uh, in the ascension. It says in verse 9, when he had spoken these things, while they watched, he was taken up and a cloud received him out of their sight. He went with the cloud, he's coming with the cloud. And while they looked steadfastly toward heaven as he went up, behold, two men stood by them in white apparel. So the uh, people who are gathered there watching him go up, these Two men, angels, appear, and they say, Men of Galilee, why do you stand gazing up into heaven? Well, this is fascinating. I mean, you know, <laughs> he's not coming back right now. This same Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will so come in like manner as you saw him go into heaven. There's only one difference between his going and his coming. When he went, he just kind of floated up. Right in the ascension, when he comes back, he's going to be riding. He's going to be riding that white horse. In Zechariah chapter 12, verses 9 and 10, <clears throat> excuse me, the Lord speaking of that day when he's going to fight and defend Israel, uh, says in verse 9, It shall be in that day that I will seek to destroy all the nations that come against Jerusalem. And I will pour out on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace, and supplication, then they will look on me whom they pierced. And 
you know, back in verse 4, you, you see who the speaker is here. And the speaker is uh, Yahweh, God, the Lord, you know, all caps, his name that he gave to Moses. And he's saying here, they will look on me whom they pierced. Yes, they will mourn for him as one mourns for his only son and grieve for him as one grieves for a firstborn. So when Israel realizes who he is, which is at his second coming, they mourn and weep and grieve. Um, in Zechariah 14, verses 1 through 5, we see this coming spoken of again, the second coming of Christ. It says, Behold, the day of the Lord is coming, and your spoil will be divided in your midst. For I will gather all the nations to battle against Jerusalem. This is at the end of the tribulation period. The city shall be taken, the houses rifled, the women ravished. Half the city shall go into captivity, but the remnant of the people shall not be cut off from the city. Now, the people who take heed to the warning that Jesus gave about the abomination of desolation, he said, flee. Those who are in Judea, get out. Uh, they'll be spared this uh, thing that happens here in verse 2. They'll be taken away and they'll be kept in that place of safety. In verse 3, then he says, Then the Lord will go forth and fight against those nations as he fights in the day of battle. Again, this is the name of the Lord. This is Yahweh. He is going to go out and fight as he fights in the day of battle. And in that day, his feet, the Lord God's feet, which, you know, the only feet he has are when he was incarnated in the sun. And so his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives, he's going to dismount, I guess, which faces Jerusalem on the east, and the Mount of Olives shall be split in two. So he's, he left from the Mount of Olives. He's coming back to the Mount of Olives. From east to west, making a very large valley, half the mountain shall move toward the north and half of it toward the south. So right there at the Mount of Olives, if you've been there, you've seen pictures or something, that's where it's going to happen. It's going to split. Then you shall flee through my mountain valley, for the mountain valley shall reach to Azal. Yes, you shall flee as you fled from the earthquake in the days of Uzziah, king of Judah. Thus the Lord my God will come and all the saints with you. So he's bringing saints with him at the second coming. You know, which saints are these? They'll be the saints that he's gathered to himself. First uh, Thessalonians chapter 4, we've, we read these numerous times. Uh, in verse 14, Paul writing to the Thessalonians says, If we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who sleep in Jesus. That's the saints. And he's, but he's only bringing them back for the rapture here. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will by no means precede those who are asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel, and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with him in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and thus we shall always be with the Lord. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. So he's, they're being comforted over those who have already fallen asleep or have already died uh, in the Lord. And, well, he will bring with him those who sleep as well as bringing us with him after being caught up. And then in 1 Corinthians 15, 50, we see this same event where Paul writes, Now this I say, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does corruption inherit incorruption. Uh, we heard a message by uh, Amir Tsarfati yesterday. It was just on, on all the trumpets in the Bible. And he mentioned the fact, you know, these bodies can't go. There's nothing we can do. He said you can work out five times a day. You, know? uh, you can eat keto. Or he, he said, uh, you can be vegan. He said, or you can be like me and you can eat vegan animals. Which is kind of, that's kind of my diet, you know. In verse 51, he says, Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised incorruptible and we shall be changed. Paul's saying, we who are alive at, the, at this time when the Lord comes back. This is the beginning of the tribulation period. Shall be changed. We'll be caught up to meet uh, him in the air with those who have died. For this corruptible must put on incorruption. This mortal must put on immortality. 
So when this corruptible is put on incorruption, this mortal is put on immortality, then shall be brought to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. All on earth will mourn at the second coming. Some Jews and perhaps others will mourn because they realize who the Messiah is and they will believe on him. They will mourn over their sin and humble themselves before the Lord. Others will mourn because they are not willing to repent. They will mourn over the fact that they have been defeated by the Lord of hosts, the Lord of armies, and refuse to humble themselves and acknowledge him as Lord of all. But when Jesus returns to the earth, there will be no doubt by anyone that he has come. It will not be a hidden or an invisible coming. It's not the rapture, even if you're post-trib. It's not an allegorical coming or a coming after the church has established his kingdom, as some teach. I don't think I would want to be part of a kingdom that the church established apart from the coming of Jesus. It's been tried before on smaller scale, and it has not resembled the kingdom described in the scriptures. There are many who have come through the ages claiming that Christ has come or that they are the second coming of Christ. We read in 1 John 2.18, Little children, it's the last hour, and as you have heard that the Antichrist is coming, even now many Antichrists have come by which we know that it is the last hour. This was in the days of the first church. You know, John's already saying it's the last hour, and many Antichrists have come, or uh, that can be in the place of Christ, as well as meaning opposed to Christ. In Second Peter chapter 2, he warns also and says, Uh, There were also false prophets among the people, even as there will be false teachers among you who who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the Lord who bought them and bring on themselves swift destruction. And many will follow their destructive ways because of whom the way of truth will be blasphemed. So these these who turn to false teachers, these uh, false prophets were among the people. He says there will be false teachers among you even denying the Lord who bought them. The price had still been paid for those who had rejected him. And then First John chapter 4, verse 1, John writes and says, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits, whether they are of God, because many false prophets have gone out into the world. And if we're going to test the spirits, it's going to be by what they say, what they teach. Is it consistent with what we read in the scriptures. He says, By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is of God. One of the heresies that the early church was dealing with was people who said, Well, Jesus didn't really become a human being. He just appeared to be so. And of course, if he didn't become a human being, he can't be our Redeemer. So that's that's a false doctrine, a damnable doctrine. He says, And every spirit that does not confess that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is not of God. And this is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you have heard was coming and is now already in the world. It's been in the world since. You are of God, little children, and have overcome them, because he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. Now, many have come in our modern era saying that Jesus has come and is in secret or he's in the hidden rooms. Um, There was a movement in the 1800s. Uh, there was a, gr- a great excitement, um, various different groups. They were uh, different leaders. They were known as the Second Adventists, which Adventist is an Advent is a coming. So they were promoting the Second Coming. But they ended up making certain prophe- prophecies, like one group was the Millerites. Uh, William Miller was the leader of that group. And, and these groups began setting numerous dates for Christ's return. And, of course, they didn't happen. Jesus didn't come back. The date of October 22, 1844, was eventually chosen as the day when Christ would return and the faithful would ascend to heaven. There were reports of Millerites selling or giving away their worldly possessions and even donning white robes to ascend to heaven. There were stories about some of them climbing trees, you know, ready to jump when the rapture came, but those might be uh, myths. Jesus didn't return October 22, 1844. It was obvious. 
It was known afterwards as the Great Disappointment. That would be disappointing. The prophecy was proven false, and the movement ended with some becoming involved in the Seventh-day Adventist movement. The Seventh-day Adventists came out of this time period. There were others. The uh, Jehovah's Witnesses came out of this time period. Uh, Alexander Campbell, who established many of the churches of Christ, came out of this time period. Um, And there were others. Mary Baker Eddy, I think, was also around this time. Many cults and false doctrines came out of this time, and what ended up happening was they they decided, well, yeah, I was disappointed Jesus come, didn't come back, but you know, that date was right. Really, something did happen there. And so there was a, a man who was involved in the Seventh-day Adventist movement, established partially by Ellen G. White. They considered her a true prophet of God, and some of them still do a man named Edson, and after the disappointment, Edson received a strong impression that Jesus had moved from the holy place to the most holy place of the sanctuary in heaven. This is what happened on October 22, 1844. Jesus moved from the holy place, he said, to the most holy place of the sanctuary in heaven. This is a strong impression. Do strong impressions overrule what the scriptures teach? Do strong impressions need to be checked out according to what the scriptures say? In Hebrews chapter 9 and verse 12, speaking of Jesus, says, Not with the blood of goats and calves, but with his own blood he entered the most holy place once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. So if Edson had studied his Bible and read in uh, Hebrews 9, 12, that Jesus had entered the most holy place. He couldn't have entered there in, in, on October 22, 1844. But eventually they concluded that this 1844 was the correct date, but the event was not correct. It wasn't that he was returning to the earth or returning for the church. They taught that a heavenly, thus invisible event had taken place. Isn't this just what we're reading about in Mark 13, Matthew 24? They weren't studying and paying attention to the scriptures. So now the false prophecy was deemed to actually be correct, but a hidden aspect of Jesus' ministry was revealed. No, it wasn't revealed. It was rather created. This is called the investigative judgment. The doctrine teaches that in the Holy of Holies, in the heavenly sanctuary, Christ is now conducting an investigation into the lives of, of all who have ever professed belief in Jesus to see if you're really going to be there or not. And, you know, just once again, the plain wording of the Scriptures, Jesus doesn't need to do this. He has no... He doesn't have a need to do this investigative judgment for however long, you know, it's been going on. He already knows everything about everyone. He's judging all their works, according to them, by the standard of God's law. Is anyone saved by the standard of God's law? All those whose lives fail to measure up to the standard of the law are rejected and condemned as not having true faith. Added to this idea later was the shut-door doctrine, and if someone had not come to the remnant church, which was them, by the time Jesus entered the Holy of Holies, which was... October 22nd, 1844, according to them, they were just out of luck. No salvation for you. So all of you have believed since October 22nd, 1844. So if this doctrine is correct, you're toast. Well, when they eventually came to observe the seventh day as a Sabbath, which is, you know, that's the, the name, and the seventh day, that's the correct Sabbath. That's Saturday in our calendar, not Sunday. When they finally came to observe this seventh day, they said it was required of all true believers, and a doctrine was promulgated that Sunday worship is the mark of the beast. And any people who worship on Sunday would eventually take that mark, is how they explained it you know, later on. So we learned that false prophets and false teachers adjust their doctrine when it's proven false in order to perpetuate and maintain their position of authority. 
Another group that uh, came out of this and, and the same thing occurred as the Jehovah's Witnesses or the early known as the International Bible Students, first the Bible Students, then the International Bible Students. And uh, Charles Taze Russell was the founder of that group. And he came from the Second Adventists, and he borrowed the Invisible Presence Doctrine, among other false teachings, which they had developed in response to this failed prophecy. Jesus didn't show up visibly as was predicted for 1874. This was um, what uh, Russell came up with as a date. Therefore, he did return in 1874, but he was invisible. And this is according to Zion's Watchtower, now known as the Watchtower, October 1881, page 289. Well, Russell wrote a series of books called Studies in the Scriptures, and he had explicitly identified October 1914. At first it was 1874, that didn't work out, so it had to be moved to uh, 1914. And he identified 1914 as, quote, the full end of the times of the Gentiles, end quote. And consequently, the, quote, farthest limit, end quote, of human rulership. It would bring the beginning of Christ's millennial reign, and all his followers expected the immediate translation of the saints to rule with the revealed Christ that year, 1914. Following the earth's tribulation and unrest, the Jews would return to God's favor. The nominal church would have fallen. The final battle between Christ and Satan would have ended and the kingdoms of the world would be overthrown. And Christ would have gathered his saints into heaven where they would reign with him, and when the millennium would begin, they would reign with him when the millennium would begin. The belief was unequivocal based on his study of the Bible and the Great Pyramid. Is the Great Pyramid a source of truth for dates and for the Bible? He now has a great, well, not a great pyramid, he has, now has a pyramid on his grave. That's his his monument or his tombstone. He took measurements and it all came out to the years, the correct years that he was promulgating, except I think it was Bill Seatner, he's an ex-Jehovah's Witness, and he was talking about, you know, how the the measurement changed on the Great Pyramid at one point to match the years that were being set forth. And he said those Egyptians are very careless, they leave their pyramids out in the sun and they shrink, you know. <laughs> So, this was based on a study of the Bible, the Great Pyramid, and satisfied only upon the establishment of an earthly paradise. Russell remarked that by altering the prophecy, even one year would destroy the perfect symmetry of its biblical chronology. In the second book of his studies in the Scriptures series, he described it as an established truth that the final end of the kingdoms of this world and the full establishment of the kingdom of God will be accomplished at the end of A.D. 1914. Did this happen? So what did they decide? <laughs> what? Well, they've made you know numerous prophecies about the coming of the Lord. Yeah, but what did they decide about 1914? It, you know, if it wasn't the end by the end of AD 1914, what was 1914? Because they still use 1914. Yeah, it's the beginning. This is the beginning of the invisible presence of Jesus, and He's ruling from heaven, but He's ruling through. The Watchtower, Jehovah's Witnesses, that's right. So, uh, the result of this 1914 originally, as he wrote, was that all present governments will be overthrown and dissolved, along with the destruction of what God calls Babylon and what men call Christendom. The period ended in October 1914. At that time, the appointed times of the nations ended, and Jesus Christ was installed as God's heavenly king, they cite Psalm 2, which is the nations raging, and, and Daniel 7 about coming with the clouds of heaven. But of course, those don't reference what they say, the time period they say. So just as Jesus predicted, his presence as heavenly king had been marked by dramatic world developments like war, famine, earthquakes, and pestilences. They reference Matthew 24 and Luke 21. He says, such developments bear powerful testimony to the fact that 1914 indeed marked the birth of God's heavenly kingdom and the beginning of the last days of this present wicked system of things. 
According to the Watchtower organization, he really did return in invisible presence and is ruling from heaven. So again, we see rather than repenting and abandoning their false teachings, they insist they were really correct, but merely misunderstood a few things. They, along with other false prophets and false teachers, have, quote, a penchant for making false prophecies and then claiming, as others did, that these predictions have been fulfilled figuratively when they did not come to pass literally. They proclaim them literally, but when they don't come to pass, then they came to pass figuratively. And so we see what Jesus is warning about here is they tell you over, he's over here or he's over there. It's a good warning. And anybody who's paying attention and these people come to them with these kind of doctrines or ideas would, would of course, reject them. These are just a couple of modern groups. Uh, you can look at, at Mormonism, different groups who have the same kind of issues, same kind of problems with false prophecies. But such erroneous teachings have been around through the centuries. Beware, don't be taken in by teachings that are not grounded in Scripture. That is, teachings that are just using Scripture as a jumping off point for extra biblical ideas. This is why the whole counsel of God is important for balanced biblical doctrine, not adding to or taking away from the Word of God. Then there are those who claim to be Jesus, they're false Christs, uh, as warned about here as well. Many people from across the world have claimed that they are Jesus reincarnated. This is already a problem since reincarnation is a false teaching. Uh, Hebrews 9.27 says it's appointed for men to die once after this the judgment. So Christ Jesus will not be born as a baby again. He's not coming in the second coming as a baby. He's done that. That was for the taking on of human flesh, becoming a human so that he might redeem all humans under the curse of the law and deliver those who believe from the law of sin and death. He is now and has been since his resurrection in a glorified body, which he will inhabit from eternity. For eternity. Um, there are some modern day guys. These guys that I'm going to mention are still alive as of you know, when I did the study. Uh, some of them are older, so. <laughs> but these are guys who are claiming to be Jesus now, Jesus to Christ now. now. There's a guy in Brazil named, well, this is not his real name. He took the name Henri Cristo, I-N-R-I, which is the Latin phrase that was put on above the cross of Jesus. Uh, Jesus, Jesus of Jesus, King of the Jews, Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews. So he took Henry Christrow. He was a, he's a former atheist, but during the year 1979, he claimed to hear God who told him he was Jesus Christ. He started to go by the name of Henry Christo and started to dress in robes and sandals. Again, anybody who studies the Word of God and knows when Jesus comes, it's going to be like lightning from the east to the west. Every eye is going to see him. They know that this guy's claims are false. Another is Alan John Miller. Uh, before he started his group, The Divine Truth, Alan worked in the IT department of an Australian company. He has even claimed that he still remembers being crucified and that it wasn't as terrifying as said by the church. Isn't that a comforting thing to know? He also talks about how his partner Mary Luck is Mary Magdalene. Miller's cult is followed worldwide with people even moving to Australia just to be close to him. Apollo Quibbleoy. Apollo founded the kingdom of Jesus Christ, the name above every name. He led the church, that's the whole name, which was based in the Philippines in the city of Davao. He has a following of six million. Four million reside in the country while the rest live in countries ac across the world. I mean, I hadn't heard of this particular fellow. I, you know, I got a background in studying cults and isms and things. Um, Amazing. Six million people believe what this fellow is saying. Well, he claims that he's, his, one of his names, one of his aliases is the appointed son of God. Uh, that's one of his aliases according to the FBI. He's wanted in the U.S. for labor and sex trafficking. They issued a warrant for his arrest in, on November 10th, 2021. And he's been trusted with protecting the Savior of the Gentiles, according to him. 
or simply put, the non-Jewish people. He's also claimed that he has been living without sin since 2005. So that's reassuring. <laughs> Pardon? Oh, no. Not if you're the Son of God. How could it be? <laughs> Viserion of Siberia. Viserion started the Church of the Last Testament in the Siberian forest where he has now gathered around 10,000 people. His real name was Sergei Antoluvich Torop, and he worked as a Red Army patrol officer, but he lost his job a year before finding his mission. Viserion promotes reincarnation, ecology, and vegetarianism, amongst others. Um, Viserians, Viserionites on an isolated land where he teach, they live on an isolated land where he teaches them how the bitter winter winds help them build character. I don't want to be part of his group. I hate bitter winter winds. <laughs> it perverts my character. It twists it. <laughs> twisted in the wind. Now they celebrate Christmas on Viserion's birthday that falls on January 14th and does so by having a feast and performing several rituals. Then there's Oscar Ramiro Ortega Hernandez. In the year 2011, Ortega Hernandez attempted to assassinate President Obama, who was visiting San Diego with his wife, Michelle. Does anybody remember that one? This was a failed attempt, and he was caught in Pennsylvania. He tried to kill the president because he believed that Obama was the Antichrist. I've heard that, but he's not. Oscar held on to the belief that he was reincarnated as Jesus Christ to, to the rule of the Antichrist over the world. He even recorded a video talking about his message. He claimed that he looked exactly like Jesus and was the modern-day version. Then Bupete Chibu, there's like six of these guys that are currently making these claims. Bupete Chibu Chris Himba of Zambia. In the city of Kitwe of Zambia, or is it Zambia or Zambia? Zambia. This fellow claimed he was reincarnated with the powers of Jesus Christ. The people of the town beat him up for his claims and wanted to crucify him. He said that he could heal the sick church leaders for, for straying the people onto the wrong path. So the church leaders are steering people on the wrong path by telling them, this is what church leaders have wrong, telling them that Jesus was coming when he's already in the world. He's now known as Mr. Faithful, Mr. Word of God, and Parent Rock of the World. Krasimba drives a taxi with the words Lord of Lords and spreads his message. So you got the words Lord of Lords written on the side of his taxi. It's kind of like a white horse, you know, but I, I saw a picture. It's not white. Huh? Can't go as fast as lightning, Steve says. There's Wayne Bent. He's the Lord, our righteous church leader. He started in New Mexico before starting his group. He was a Seventh-day Adventist pastor. But he left after saying that God showed him that he was the Christ. That's not paying a lot of attention to the scriptures if you're a pastor and you think God's telling you that you're Christ. He was arrested, sent to prison in 2008 for molesting an underage girl. Bent even admitted that he had relations with many of his female followers, but he is their Messiah and believes that he is innocent even when the government is after him. Wayne Bent says that his conditions are just like Jesus Christ, as many are trying to destroy him by falsely accusing him. And then finally, An Sang Hong. He's known as Christ An Sang Hong to his disciples. He is the founder of the South Korean Christian Movement, the World Mission Society Church of God, or WMSCOG. He too claimed that he was Jesus Christ in this age of the Holy Spirit. Before starting the WMSCOG, he was a part of the Seventh-day Adventist Church. Some of his beliefs were quite different from others who had claimed to be reincarnations. Uh, he had made it compulsory for the members of his church to believe in God the Mother. Even though the Bible only talks about God the Father, God the Holy Spirit, and Jesus Christ, he added God the Mother. Now, this is only a list of current claimants. There are probably more out there, but these are the ones that were readily available that have been identified. There have been many more in the past, some of whom uh, we are familiar with. For example, the Reverend Moon. 
He came to complete the mission that Jesus failed at, and so he was the real Messiah. He was going to do it right. Um, we've heard of all heard of David Koresh, the Branch Davidians. He believed he was a return of Jesus. Jim Jones and the People's Temple with the Ghana massacre. Uh, he actually claimed at different times that he was Jesus, Akhenaten, the Buddha. Vladimir Lenin and Father Divine. These are all, you know, claimed to be the return of, of all these people. And then there's a, a final fellow who didn't claim it himself, Haile Selassie. Uh, you may recall him as the leader of Ethiopia. He was the emperor of Ethiopia from 1930 to 1974. And he did not claim to be Jesus, and he disapproved of claims that he was Jesus. But there's a movement, the Rastafari movement, which emerged in Jamaica during the 30s, and they believe he's the second coming. I don't know what they're doing now that he's been gone for quite some time. One article I saw lists 39 men from the 18th through the 21st centuries, all of whom claim to be Jesus' return. It only takes a little knowledge of what Jesus taught in the New Testament to prove the falsehood of all such claims. It doesn't take a Bible scholar or a theologian. Now... <laughs> We might say, hey, all these men were or are nuts. And, you know, we might think that their stories are funny, but they're funny in a very tragic, serious way because people are believing them and people are following them and people are being lost. And certainly they're deceived. Yet a number of them deceived many other people as well. Their claims to be Christ are easy to see through for a Bible believer. Still, there will be another coming who will persuade many that he is the one who is to save the world. And he will show signs and wonders to deceive, if possible, the elect. He will be the supreme counterfeit. They won't see his true colors until three and a half years before the return of Jesus. Second Thessalonians chapter 9, Paul writes about this one. He says, uh, the coming of the lawless one is according to the working of Satan with all power, signs, and lying wonders. He's going to be able to do what people will consider miracles. And with all unrighteous deception among those who perish because they did not receive the love of the truth that they might be saved. And for this reason, God will send them strong delusion that they should believe the lie. That they all may be condemned who did not believe the truth but had pleasure in unrighteousness. In Revelation 13, we read about uh, a beast who is in support of the beast that comes out of the sea. This is a beast coming up out of the earth or the land. Um, Revelation 13:11. It says in verse 11, he had two horns like a lamb, he spoke like a dragon, and he exercises all the authority of the first beast in his presence, causes the earth and those who dwell in it to worship the first beast whose deadly wound was healed. He performs great signs so that he even makes fire come down from heaven on the earth in the sight of men. That would impress a lot of people. And he deceives those who dwell on the earth by those signs which he has granted was granted to do in the sight of the beast, telling those who dwell on the earth to make an image to the beast who was wounded by the sword and lived. He was granted power to give breath to the image of the beast, and the image of the beast should both speak and cause as many as would not worship the image of the beast to be killed. And he goes on to give the, the mark of the beast, that number uh, following here. So these signs and wonders uh, in verse 22 of Mark 13, they're going to rise, they're going to show signs and wonders to deceive, if possible, even the elect. And we don't believe that the elect can be deceived because they're the elect. And then in John 5 and verse 43, Jesus said to the Jews who were rejecting him, I've come in my Father's name and you do not receive me. If another comes in his own name, him you will receive. And this is the one who will be coming. So Jesus provides these statements as a warning for those who will be alive during this time period of the last seven years of Daniel's 77th. He says, take heed. He has warned us. He has warned us all. The end of chapter 13 ends with a warning to be ready. Watch for him. Now, David Guzik says, Jesus told his 
told this to his followers as a warning so that they would take heed. It wasn't just for those who come to faith in Jesus during the Great Tribulation. It wasn't just for those who live at the end of the age. It's for everyone to take heed. Jesus has reasons why he wants you to take heed, anticipating and being ready for his soon return. First, it has a purifying effect on our lives. 1 John chapter 3 and verse 1 says, Behold what manner of love the Father has bestowed on us, that we should be called the children of God. Therefore the world does not know us, because it did not know Him. Beloved, now we are children of God, and it has not yet been revealed what we shall be. But we know that when He is revealed, we shall be like Him, coming for us. For we shall see Him as He is. And everyone who has this hope in Him purifies himself just as He is pure. So this Watching, waiting for him has a purifying effect. It gives us a sense of urgency. As we mentioned, the last part of Mark here, we'll see where he says, watch. You don't know when I'm coming. Watch. Be ready is the idea. And then it makes us bold in speaking to the lost. There's a great harvest out there yet to be reaped, you know, bringing people into his kingdom. And uh, John chapter 4, Jesus said, lift up your eyes. You think it's four months to the harvest? No, the, the fields are ripe for harvest now. And then in uh, Luke ten two, he said, the harvest is great, but the workers are few. Pray that the Lord would send workers out into his harvest. And then it also helps us keep a light touch on the things of this world. In 1 Corinthians 7, uh, Paul writing about the time being short in verse 29 He says, from now on, even those who have wives should be as though they had none. Now, he's not saying, you know, break up your family, anything like that. But he's saying there's a greater uh, thing that must be dealt with here. And so that takes second place. To those who weep as though they did not weep. Those who rejoice as as though they did not rejoice. Those who buy as though they did not possess. And those who use this world is not misusing it, for the form of this world is passing away. So, uh, keeping a light touch on this world. Second Peter chapter 3, uh, verses 9 through 14, uh, Peter talks about what is going to end, this, how this world is going to end up. And he says in verse 11, Therefore, since all these things will be dissolved, what manner of persons ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness? looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be dissolved, being on fire, the elements will melt with fervent heat. Nevertheless, we, according to his promise, look for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, looking forward to these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, without spot, and blameless. So uh, we want to invest above and not invest in this world. This will be a time, the time of greatest deception in the world of all time. And many will be deceived because they have refused the love of the truth. The days in which we are living are also days of deception, which will greatly increase as we approach those final seven years preceding the kingdom. William MacDonald says the Great Tribulation will again witness the rise of false messiahs. People will be so desperate that they will turn to anyone who promises them safety. We've seen that a lot in recent times, um, obeying anyone who will promise you you're going to be safe. Uh, David Guzik says, in the midst of such tribulation, men will be tempted to follow after false messiahs. And MacDonald again says, but believers will know that Christ will not appear quietly or unheralded, even if these false Christs perform supernatural wonders as they will, the elect will not be deceived. They will realize that these miracles are satanically inspired. Miracles are not necessarily divine. They represent superhuman departures from the known laws of nature, but may represent the work of Satan, angels, or demons. The man of sin will be given satanic power to perform miracles, as we read in Second Thessalonians 2. So what's the remedy for deception? It's a love of the truth. The reason people are lost is because they reject a love of the truth. It is imperative that we keep our thumbs between the pages and our nose in the book, as the love song sang. Talking about the book, book, book of life. We've got to stay in there. In Psalm 17, I'm sorry, Psalm 19, verse 7, we read about the law of the Lord, keeping our 
knows in the book. He says, The law of the Lord is perfect, converting the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The statutes of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord, which is the same as these others, it's law, statutes, judgments. The fear of the Lord is what he's given us in writing. It's clean, enduring forever. The judgments of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, yea, than much fine gold. Sweeter also than honey and the honeycomb. Moreover, by them your servant is warned, and in keeping them there is great reward. And then last, Psalm 1, verse 1, he says, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor stands in the path of sinners, nor sits in the seat of the scornful. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law he meditates day and night. He shall be like a tree planted by the rivers of water, that brings forth its fruit in its season, whose leaf also shall not wither, and whatever he does shall prosper. The ungodly are not so, but are like the chaff which the wind drives away. Therefore the ungodly shall not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the ungodly shall perish. Take heed, Jesus says, see I have told you all things beforehand. We need to take heed to all the things that the Lord has given us, told us. And you know, it's important that we be in the Word, however we might find to do so, uh, reading, audio, audio uh, whatever is easiest and makes the most sense beyond, you know, when we gather together and we study together, uh, either Thursday or, or today. Uh, we need to be grounded, planted like that tree uh, by taking heed to his, his word. We'll be planted by the rivers of water so the Holy Spirit will. It'll be the water that waters the seed of the word that's implanted in our hearts by faith. But, it, you know, we don't want to be on a, a restricted scripture diet where we're only eating once a week or twice a week. We want to be uh, nourishing our spirits. Often, daily is the best. There might be days where you know, say, well, it's just impossible, but uh, daily that's your daily recommended allowance is, you know, as much as you can fit in. This is a, this is an area where gluttony is not, not necessarily bad, you know. You can just load up on the Word. And, of course, we all have other responsibilities. We can't do it to the neglect of things that we must do otherwise.